This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. What's good, everybody? It's Sunday, September 10th. I'm Dion Raboin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. I know you could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with me, and I appreciate that. The S&P 500 had a rough week and is coming off its worst month since February, after five straight months of rising higher. And September is historically the weakest month for the stock market. But if you want to know where markets are going next, it's about data. And right now, it is still all about inflation. This week, we get a big read on inflation. CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is out on Wednesday. It's the most closely followed measure of inflation. It tracks different goods and services that make up what economists call baskets. The biggest contributor to CPI, by far, has been housing. In fact, housing costs were responsible for 90% of the rise in inflation we saw in the latest report. Skylar Olson, chief economist at Zillow, is going to explain why that is and what it means for the market and the economy. But first, we are going to talk about the future of investing. A report out this week is going to give us some pivotal information about Charles Schwab, the market leader in retail trading. If you buy stocks, bonds, options, FX, crypto, or anything else, you'll want to stay tuned for that conversation. We'll be right back. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Let's talk about Chuck. Charles Schwab is releasing its latest monthly activity highlights report this week, and it seemed like a good time to talk about an elephant in the trading room. Schwab is the largest publicly traded brokerage firm in the U.S. It has more than $8 trillion, with a T, dollars in assets under management. When it comes to retail trading, they are the leader. So if you're a retail investor, meaning you're probably not making multi-million dollar trades, what happens at Schwab matters for you. And right now, things aren't going very well over there. The company reported a $500 million decline in profit from the year before in its latest earnings report. 
and last month announced it would be laying off an unspecified number of employees and closing or downsizing an unspecified number of offices in an effort to save $500 million a year. Schwab also this year borrowed around $46 billion from the Federal Home Loan Bank at interest rates that analysts who watch the company have called expensive. As we saw with the company's decision to cut commission fees to zero in 2019, when Schwab moves, the rest of the industry moves. Ed Klissel, the chief U.S. strategist at Ned Davis Research, told me recently that brokerages like Schwab will need to find additional revenue streams. A Schwab spokesperson tells me, quote, we have absolutely no plans to change our pricing approach. Zero. I will note that that sentence was underlined and in bold in the email. In fact, that spokesperson went on to say, quote, there have been absolutely no indications of such a move. And if you look at our history, we have consistently lowered pricing for investors, end quote. And that's true. But at some point, the economics indicate that some sort of change may be coming. Here to talk about all of this is WSJ Deputy Editor-in-Chief Charles Farrell. Charles covered markets here at the Journal for almost 20 years and was the finance editor before becoming number two at WSJ in June. Charles, before we really dig into this, tell me why Schwab is so important. So Schwab is a giant retail brokerage house in the U.S. There are 34 million Schwab accounts. So they're just a lot of people who have their money with Schwab. They use it to buy and sell stocks and bonds and other securities. It's just a big, big, big player. 34 million accounts is a lot of accounts. Yeah. And we saw in 2019 when Schwab took fees to zero, everyone else followed because it was like, well, if Schwab's doing it, we have to do it. Is there a chance that Going through what Schwab is going through with the layoffs, with the cutbacks in real estate, with the big amount of money that they had to borrow to keep things moving, that they say, okay, we made all these cuts on one side. Well, now we've got to increase revenue on the other side, and that means we've got to start charging for trades. I mean, it's hard to say exactly what will happen in the future. I think that it would be hard to imagine that we will go back away from uh, the the zero commission universe that we've arrived at now. But at the end of the day, all of these companies, Schwab, Robinhood, Fidelity, whoever it is that is handling your trades and your investments, they need to get paid. So they're going to find out some other way of getting paid. Even if it says the sticker price on the trades is $0, there are other ways. Fidelity, for instance, a big Schwab competitor, has a big, big, big business in 401ks and retirement plans. So that's a way that they can make some money. So um, they have a big business doing that. Schwab also does that. Everybody has little bits of all of these things. But Schwab had a very unusual business model at the core of what it did. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say what that is? I should say what that you is. You should say what um, that is. So what Schwab did um, starting a number of years ago was essentially to set itself up as a bank. And so what it would do is it would hang on to customers' money. And a bank is a wonderful thing to be most of the time. A bank is a wonderful thing to be because generally speaking, you don't have to pay your customers that much for mm-hmm. them to put their money with you. And you can turn around and you can make a whole bunch of money lending and doing all kinds of things with that money. And this is the magic sauce of banking. So long as you don't blow yourself up. And that was very, very, very profitable for Schwab until this year. And tell us what happened this year. Well, interest rates went up and that made a lot of people reconsider what they were doing with their money. And we saw a lot of consequences of this. Silicon Valley Bank being the most obvious where people 
pulled their money out of banks. One place that they pulled their money out of was Schwab's bank. Because it became clear, as it became clear to a bunch of other places, that you could earn more money on your cash by doing other things with it. And that meant that clients pulled their money out, which meant that Schwab was making less money because there was less money there. It also meant that Schwab had to pay up in order to, A, stem the flow of people leaving, mm -hmm. and B, to replace some of that money that was going out. They needed to borrow from other people. They borrowed from the federal home loan banks. Yes. Um, they issued these very expensive certificates of deposit to try mm -hmm. to raise money. They had to find other ways to replace the cheap money that was running away with more expensive money. Right. So that's, that's the sort of quick version of what happened to Schwab earlier this year. So the question for Schwab and for the wider question of retail trading is you as the retail trader, it looks like the sticker price is $0, but actually you're paying for it somehow. Mm -hmm. And in the old days, if you had a Schwab account, you were probably paying for it partly this way because you left your money at Schwab and Schwab was not paying you any interest. There will be some other way that you pay in the future. Mm. So this week, we're going to get the Schwab monthly activity report, right? What could we learn from this report that could tell us what's coming for retail investors. So the key things that I think are really important to watch there are the deposit balances. Do we see any movement one way or the other? Are people starting to come back? Um, and then it's also important to understand how much of those balances are in the bank deposits versus in money market funds and whether the total number of accounts um, is growing. You'll get a sense whether the kind of exodus of customers or exodus of balances mm. that happened during the first part of the year are starting to turn back. Because at the end of the day, this is a profitable business. And if Schwab can bring more people back, more dollars of those people back, then they will over time make money. That was Charles Farrell, Deputy Editor-in-Chief here at The Wall Street Journal. Up next, why Fed Chair Jerome Powell might want to say the rent is too damn high at his next press conference. High inflation has impacted many of us. But what happens when prices go up 55, 67, or even 276%? It makes living more costly. It eats into your paycheck. At the end of the day, the salary itself, it's not enough. And money quickly loses value. You can't see if you can't do anything. Check out our complete series on extreme world inflation from A to Z, from What's News, plus other exclusive content on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Starting in the summer of 2022, and for 12 straight months, the Consumer Price Index showed annual inflation was lower than it had been the month before. It was like clockwork. It was exactly what the Federal Reserve wanted. Investors were feeling good, and stock prices were going up. But in July, inflation rose for the first time in a year, and housing costs accounted for 90% of the increase in overall inflation, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. 90%. If you look at real-time measures of rent and housing costs, we see that those prices are cooling, though. So what gives? To answer that question, I'm joined by Skylar Olson, chief economist at Zillow, the real estate company known for its online listings. So I think the very straightforward question is just why has housing been such a big contributor to inflation lately? Well, about a third of that general 
consumer basket is shelter. So it's going to have a big contribution just by its size in the basket, but it also has a big contribution because of how much shelter costs have grown. When we say shelter costs, we're trying to get at the idea of rent across the whole market. So all those headlines about for sale prices, those are sort of related, but just set them aside for a second, right? So here we're thinking about, okay, why is rent increasing? Well, there, it's related that home prices are growing a lot. It's like a mounting and mounting barrier to moving on to your next stage. Just think about the pandemic and what it meant. First, it was a huge shock. We were pulling back economically just en masse at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Okay, but then what happens? Then we start getting a lot of economic support, right? It starts coming from the fiscal side, so, you know, employment benefits, but we're also getting just a lot of cash influx from even, say, monetary policy, right? Interest rates are really low. Mm -hmm. This just leads to economic growth in general. Lots of people are getting new jobs, you know? That encourages more people to go get a new apartment. So this economic activity, first of it, happened at a time when fundamental demand for housing was reaching record size. So 2023 was when the age of 25 to 45-year-olds hit peak size, like as big as it may ever be, right? And these are prime moving ages. These are people who are getting, you know, their early career jobs and, you know, trying to figure it out. And um, yeah. so that's a lot of pressure. And there's been that huge demand going on for years now. We've seen that through the pandemic. But I think a lot of folks are thinking, OK, that was the story in 2021. I understood mm-hmm. that in 2022. Mm-hmm. But here we are more than halfway through 2023. Yeah. And this housing inflation is still accounting for 90 percent of the overall increase in inflation. Yeah. With inflation being such a big piece of the economic puzzle, the market puzzle, what the Fed is looking at, I mean, I think it just it begs the question, why more than halfway through 2023 are we still here with this housing inflation driving things? Yeah, let's talk about that, because that measure, the CPI rental shelter components are still growing, as you mentioned, like at a fast clip and they're contributing in a big way. And so we have a lot of focus on that. So what we're trying to ask ourselves is, will that continue or will that start to really slow down? So what's the leading indicator that we can look at? And this is where Zillow's data set can play a really fun role because those shelter components of CPI are capturing, as I mentioned, this full market. So all the releases and owner's equivalent rent and everything. So we're watching it slow down but it's still growing at, honestly, a pace that's much larger than it was pre-pandemic. It's still, in historical terms, feels aggressive. And as other prices may come in hand, this slower moving thing, which is good to watch it slow down, and, and that builds this confidence about general inflation. So you've got these trends of more supplies and more housing being built and brought online. And you've also got this trend of these higher mortgage rates really keeping folks from going out and buying housing the way they would have. Because, mm. you know, if the mortgage rates are seven and a quarter percent, which is around where they are now, I'm going to think a lot harder about going out and buying a house than I Mm -hmm. would if they were 3% or 2.5% as they were a couple of years ago. Those trends, though, as you said, have slowed down the growth of housing costs. 
but they haven't stopped it. It hasn't mm-hmm. sent it into reverse. Right. What has to happen for us to get there? So I don't see prices coming down because when mortgage rates go up, I just see a pullback in supply from the existing market. So that demand and supply side balance each other out for prices. And all I really get is just much fewer sales. Now, I might have been able to anticipate more supply coming into the market, say, more you know, a little bit more of a distressed seller, someone who lost their job, so they're more motivated to sell. They're not going to foreclose because they have record high home equity. They're just going to sell it, but they're going to be more motivated to sell. But if I don't see more and more job loss, I don't know what the mechanism is in order to return supply to the market um, in this situation. Mm. So as you're seeing this trend that we have seen thus far, if the trend continues and housing plays this really outsized role in pushing inflation up and inflation is going up more than expected or inflation is going up when it is expected to go down, right? Is there mm-hmm. a thought that, OK, you know what? That's actually not so bad because we yeah. know that housing is a lagging indicator. So let's say we see the CPI come out and we've got these shelter components that are moving forward and we get a very similar read to last month, right? As long as it was as expected and these month over month growths are continuing to on net trend, you know, lower and lower, then that's fine. Even though that growth rate is still large, there's a lot of momentum here. It's more important that that growth rate is smaller than it used to be and that we continue to see that progress. So not seeing, oh, rent is finally falling is not going to be what we're waiting for, right? We kind of anticipate another big number. It's just important that it's smaller than the month before. That was Zillow chief economist Skylar Olson. Before we get out of here, it's time to talk about Apple. The company has announced it's having a big event on Tuesday. And while they didn't say it, just about everyone is expecting that Apple will unveil its latest iPhone at the event. The company has a long tradition of bringing out its new iPhones in autumn. And it's coming at a critical time for Apple. Last week, we reported that China is banning government workers from using iPhones at work. Competitor Huawei just released a new 5G phone. That news sent Apple stock lower late last week. China has been one of Apple's biggest markets. It accounts for about 19% of overall revenue, according to recent earnings reports. So that had me thinking. With these pressures from overseas and competition from other smartphone makers, why is Apple still one of the world's most valuable companies? In July, Apple's value rose to $3 trillion, the first company to hit that milestone. The stock price has fallen a bit since July, but the company's market cap is still hovering near $3 trillion. Apple has added almost $1 trillion to its market cap since January and nearly $2 trillion since March 2020. I would expect to see these kinds of numbers from a company that had unveiled something that changed our world in the past three years. But what has Apple done since March 2020 that makes the company worth another $2 trillion? The company's revenue has dropped for three quarters in a row. iPhone sales are down, and so are overall sales from a year ago, according to its latest earnings report. Apple did not respond to a request for comment. Listen, I'm not saying Apple is a bad company or that its stock price should fall. I don't give investment advice. And the analysts who cover Apple are still overwhelmingly bullish. Of the 45 analysts who rate the company, just one has a sell rating on the stock, according to FactSet. 
Goldman Sachs and Citi even told clients to buy ahead of the big Tuesday event. Goldman expects Apple to increase its share of the smartphone market, and Citi predicts that the new iPhone will see big demand as folks with the iPhone 12 seek replacements. So I'll be watching Apple's big event this Tuesday to see just what's in the big reveal. Will they have some blow-your-socks-off new product or innovation that's going to change the game? And will those analysts stay bullish after seeing just what Tim Cook has to say? Stay tuned. And that's everything you need to know to take on the week for Sunday, September 10th. The show is produced by Jess Jupiter. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our dope theme music. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabone. Stay smart.